0: Luke, the 16th chapter, I'll begin reading in verse 19. And there was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thou thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. And now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Besides all of this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from thence to you cannot; neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. As parents, we understand that there are three ways that we can motivate our children to do what's right. Sometimes we use fear. We tell them that if they don't do what they're supposed to do, or they do something that they're not supposed to do, that there's going to be consequences. There's going to be a price that they have to pay. There are other times that we may tell them that there's a reward, that if they do something, that we'll maybe go get ice cream after we're done, or you're going to get an allowance or something good. There's a reward for doing good. So there's a motive there. But then there's also the motive of love, where we... Hopefully our children grow to a point where they're not motivated by fear or motivated by reward, but it's motivated because they love us and they see the love that we have for them and we want to do what's right. And I believe that those three motives are the same things that God uses today. He's used it throughout time to try to motivate us to move our faith from an intellectual belief to an obedient faith. Because we know that God uses the fear of punishment he uses a promise of a reward and he also see, we see His great love for us. We have been talking about sin over the last few weeks and what sin will do to us and how it separates us from God and that God has made a way that we can come back and we can, we can be reconciled to Him. And so He uses these motivation factors to help us to avoid sin, to stay away from sin, but also to realize that He loves us enough that He gave us a plan. Last Sunday we looked at the message of the cross and what Jesus came to this earth to do, that He came so that you and I could have salvation. But I think that as we look at these, what we're going to look at today is the fear as a motivator, and then next Sunday we're going to look at heaven, the reward that He's promised to us. And then I don't know if I'll have a lesson on love, but I think that last Sunday does show us the love that God has in that message of the cross, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that God loved us so much that He sent His Son to die for you and me so that you and I could be saved. We realize that there are some people that are motivated or moved by the thoughts of hell. I remember a few years back, I had an individual that asked me if they needed to be baptized again because they had obeyed the Gospel out of fear. They were afraid of what was going to happen. And I said, no, you don't need to be baptized again because if if fear is what motivates... They didn't want to die in that condition because they knew that there was going to be punishment. And I believe that that's what God put those things there in the Bible for to help us to understand that there is going to be punishment if we're not faithful to Him. And so I told that individual that he did not need to be baptized again if his motive was fear of God. But I did tell him that he should grow to the point where he's not obeying God out of fear, but he's obeying God because he loves God. And I think that that's the point that First Corinthians the 13th chapter is making. That we're moved by our love for God because we know that he loved us. But others are moved and motivated by the thought of heaven, the eternal reward with God his family, and the love and, and the saved of all ages past, present, and future. And still others are motivated when they catch a glimpse of God's love. And sometimes it's very hard for people to understand how God could love someone like them. How could He love someone like me? When Peter, when Paul said that he was the chief of sinners, we look at an individual like that and how he had made havoc of the church. He persecuted people, consented to their death. We read of him first when he held the coats of those at Stone Stephen. You look at an individual like that and you say, how could God love them? But that's the joy. That's the blessing that we have knowing that God does love us and that He cares about us and He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. So today I would like for us to focus our attention on the fear of punishment. I want us to look at that narrative that we just read concerning the rich man and Lazarus and explore the fact that what Jesus believed in and taught that hell was a real place. It's a place that's been prepared. It was a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. But those of us who are unfaithful, when we are unfaithful in the end, we will have our home there also. And so I believe that this narrative contains what Jesus believed on our subject that we're looking at today. Some today would argue that we should not use this Scripture to base our belief upon what hell is and what it consists of. They argue that this is just a parable that Jesus is giving. In other words, a story. Something that is not real. Real. And it's not to be used for the basis of biblical perspective on the state of the unsaved. But I want to make two points. Nowhere in the Scripture does it call this event that Jesus is talking about a parable. Look at what Jesus said in this story or in this event. There was a certain rich man. And there was laid at his gate a beggar named Lazarus. He's talking about there was. This person existed. These two people, these two individuals at one point lived on this earth. And in this event, there's only one person that has a name. And in no other parable that Jesus gives, is there a name mentioned. And so I believe that it is real. But even if it is a parable... Jesus never used a false story to make a true point. A parable is a true physical event or a physical something that someone could relate to. He told parables about things that happened that people could relate to and see in their everyday lives, but in telling that story, it had an heavenly or a spiritual application to it. And so you can look at various parables that Jesus gave and you can see that, but this one is different because it talks about two individuals that existed. And so what we believe, what our doctrine is, determines our relationship with God and with one another and will ultimately determine our eternal destination. You see, we cannot deny that hell exists that it is a place of punishment, that it is a place of retribution for sin, and that it is a place that is completely separated from God and His blessings, and it is a central doctrine of the Old and the New Testament. So to say that hell does not exist, that it is not real, would be saying that what the Bible says about it is false. Hell is a real place. It's a place that I don't want to go to. And it's a place that I don't think anyone really that understands what it is would want to go to. Listen to what the Bible tells us. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, "...and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and to everlasting contempt." In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, Jesus said, "...and fear not them which can kill the body..." But not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In Second Thessalonians chapter one verse seven through nine, it says and to you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. You see in that passage of Scripture that we're going to be separated from God. Sin separates us from God, but I want us to realize that here on this earth, we're not totally separated from God. Hell is the only place that we will be totally separated from God. Here, you might have atheists. You have people that disregard God. They don't believe that He exists. They they think that when you die, it's over with. There's nothing left. God still blesses them today. The sun rises. The rain falls on them. They still harvest times. They're still blessed by God. They're able to breathe and live because God is good to us. But in hell, there will be absolutely no blessings from God because you will be eternally separated from God. So, even in this world, it's hard for us to understand what it means to be totally separated from our Lord. In Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 50, Jesus says that if our hand or our foot or our eyes causes us to sin, we need to cut it off. It is better to enter into the eternal life man, rather than having two hands, two feet or two eyes where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. I remember as a kid we would go and we would hear gospel uh, go to gospel meetings and you would hear some well-known preacher who would stand up and he would talk about hell. And he would call you listen to what he said and he would be very descriptive about hell and what was going to happen. He could make you stay awake at night thinking about your soul and what was going to happen to it if you were lost. I'm afraid that we've gotten away from that style of preaching and and, and that information. That people aren't afraid of hell. As I mentioned uh, earlier, or some, I don't know if I even mentioned it in the sermon, but I wondered if the news media today could report on Lazarus and the rich man and what took place here, how would they report it? Would heaven be a to- place of to- or hell? Would, would hell be a place of torment? Would Lazarus be in a place of comfort? What would they say? Would they take the fire away? Would they take the torment away? And then I thought, well, there's liberal preachers that are out there that do that very thing, that take the fire away from hell, they take the punishment away, they take away the eternalness of hell, and replace it with something that doesn't sound as threatening. God put all of these things here for a reason. God put it in His Word so that you and I could realize there is two choices that we have, heaven or hell. And that we don't want to go to hell because we're going to see, as we'll see in this lesson, what hell is. There are two questions that I want us to think about. Is there any doubt that there is a place after death that is to be avoided because of its awfulness. I've mentioned this before, that time that I was in a hardware store, and the owner of that hardware store eventually died, but he was always very good and nice and kind to help people. There was times that I've I've seen him give things away uh, when people needed it. And someone had said to him at one point, there must be a special place in heaven for you. And I heard him because he spoke pretty loud so everyone could hear it. He said, no, I'm going to hell. I'm going straight to hell. There isn't no place for me in heaven. And I thought, how sad that someone looks at life that way, that looks at their destiny, that they see there's no hope. There is hope here in this life, and we need to understand that. There is a place called hell. It is real. It's not a place that anybody wants to go to that understands what the Bible says about it. And so the Bible shows us that it is a real place. Is it true that we believe, or what we believe about this place called hell, is a strong and powerful motivation for the way that we live our lives? I certainly hope that it is. I hope that it motivates us. But I think that we can also see the draw and the pull of Satan, how that he uses sin, because many times people. Hear these stories. They hear these events. They hear the the description. They see what's taking place. But yet, sin is so powerful that they will give in to sin and forget about the consequences. That's how how strong the pull for sin is. When Moses said, when it was said of Moses that he chose to suffer the affliction with his people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That pleasure of sin is a draw to a lot of people and it pulls them away from what God wants them to do. They know the consequences, but yet they'll go ahead and give in to Satan. and give in to the temptation and they sin. So what can we learn this morning about hell? By looking at Luke chapter 16. Well, one of the things that I realize, or I think that we can learn, is that there is a consciousness in hell. Some people believe that death brings about absolute and total unconsciousness. Some believe that at death we will be annihilated, that we will cease to exist, absolutely unconscious and permanently so, and eternally dead. Let me just say this right here. If I'm lost, I would hope that that would be the case. If I'm lost, I would hope that I'm annihilated, and I would hope that I cease to exist, but the Bible tells me that that's not what's going to happen. If I'm lost, I'm going to be in torment for eternity. This doctrine that they teach is logically, illogically denies the resurrection from the dead. If one does not believe in hell, he cannot logically believe in the resurrection. Why? The two doctrines are inseparably tied together. We know that there will be a resurrection, that there will be life after life. Why? Because Jesus, just before He died, and He was with His disciples, listen to what He says in John chapter 14, and verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now why, if there is nothing after this life, why would Jesus make that statement that He's going to prepare a place for them? Think about that. If we cease to exist when we die, why prepare a place for us? What good is heaven if we're dead all over? Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verses 23 through 24 For I am in a, in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. What good would it do? What good would it be with the Lord if to be with the Lord if we cease to exist? All the other scriptures that talk about the rewards, all the other scriptures that talk about what God has done for us so that we can have that home in heaven with Him would be useless if we cease to exist. Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter five and verse eight We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Doest thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Here we have a picture in Revelation. And I know that there's a lot of symbolic language that's used in the book of Revelation, but here we have a picture into the throne room of God and we see individuals that had passed away in this from this life in the throne room of God crying out, how long? How long is it going to take before our blood's revenged? And they had died for their testimony for God. They had died because of their uh, their uh, belief in the Word of God and their practicing of the Word of God. They did not cease to exist. They were still alive. Their soul was still there in the presence of God. If the doctrine of annihilation is true, Why would Jesus tell us about the rich man and the Lazarus being where they are? Truth is, hell is nothing if there is no consciousness. If we do not retain our mental faculties. Look again at Luke chapter 16. After they died, the rich man was still the rich man. Lazarus was still Lazarus, and Abraham was still Abraham. Their personalities did not change. The rich man recognized Lazarus, Abraham recognized the rich man. They could all three see, feel, hear, communicate, and remember. They could reason, they could express their reasoning and feelings to one another. So if there is no consciousness of our life here on this earth, after we pass from this life, if we cannot remember what happened here, then why did Abraham say, Son, remember. What was he supposed to remember? What he had in his lifetime. What he did in his lifetime. Not only were they aware of their consciousness and their environment, they were conscious of others and their current situation. Look at verse 28, Luke chapter 16. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. The rich man could remember his former life He could also remember his brothers. There is a reason for us to believe that he could remember times that he neglected to do God's will. I'm sure that he could remember the times that he neglected his fellow man. And I believe that that will be one of the agonies that we suffer in hell when we look back over our past life and we remember the opportunities that we had to serve God, to obey God, to obey His Gospel, to become a child of His. That's one of the difficult things that we will have to remember. Perhaps one of the most horrible thoughts are those memories. Memories of the time that we had an opportunity to change. We knew we should, but we figured we'll have another day to do it. The Bible teaches us that hell is a place of consciousness. It is also a place that is eternal. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46, Jesus said, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 26, Paul describes God as an everlasting God. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, the Hebrew writer speaks of the eternal Spirit. In those three passages of scripture, We find four expressions everlasting punishment, eternal life, everlasting God, and eternal spirit. The only difference between the words everlasting and eternal is the spelling, they mean exactly the same thing. They are translated from the same Greek word meaning eternal everlasting, without end, never to cease, and indeterminate duration. It is one of the words from which we get our word, eons, which means ages piled upon ages. And so here we have something that we must accept. Ever how long heaven is, that's how long hell will be. Ever how long God exists, that's how long hell will exist. Ever how long eternal life is, hell will still be in existence. Why? Because the same Greek words and the English words that are used to express their longevity are the same. We know God is eternal and everlasting hell is eternal and everlasting. The same words are used to describe both. Heaven is going to be forever. Hell is going to be forever. So here's the bottom line. If we accept what the Bible says concerning hell, then hell is eternal and it is an eternal existence spent in everlasting punishment. Which brings us to the next point. Hell is a place of pain. Hell is a place of torment, which is represented by the unquenchable fire in our text. Listen to the other verses that we can look at in the New Testament that describe the painful torment of hell. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 42, it's described as a furnace of fire. In Matthew chapter twenty-five and verse forty-one, it's an everlasting fire. In Mark chapter nine, verse forty-three through forty-eight, it's a fire that is not quenched. In 2 Thessalonians chapter one, verses seven through nine, Jesus comes in a flaming fire. In Revelation chapter twenty and verse ten, it's a fire; it is fire and brimstone. In chapter twenty and verse fifteen of Revelation, it's a lake of fire. And in Matthew chapter three and verse twelve. It's unquenchable. Someone says, Preacher, do you really think these passages are referring to hell? You read those passages. And read them in the context. And there is no doubt about what it is talking about. And that is hell. Someone else may say, are you telling me that there's a literal fire in hell? I don't know if there's a literal fire in hell or not. I don't know. But I do know this, that it will be a painful torment. Think about it. Can you see all things that are hot? Turn it, you Put something in the microwave. Turn it on. I'm sure that many of you have done so. Put something in the microwave. When it turns off, you reach in, you grab it, and it burns your fingers. Now I don't know about you but I'm one of those curious people you know I want to see something cook sometimes so I put stuff in the microwave and sometimes I've looked inside there and the only thing that I can see is that table or turntable just turning around and around and I hear the motor and I hear the fans and I hear the mm, but I don't see a flame but I know one thing that when you pull it out it's steaming and if you're not careful you will be burnt some say well how can there be fire and outer darkness at the same time how can there be a fire that and and it not kill and consume or annihilate the occupants i don't know how god does that either but i also don't know how he made a burning bush on mount sinai that would burn but the bush would not be consumed but he did He can make a fire that is everlasting and non-consuming. As far as darkness is concerned, I've never seen a flame in a microwave. But I know that there's something there that is painful and it can hurt. Let's not focus on the questions and the what-ifs. But on the suffering that I think our Lord wants us to see and understand so we can avoid going to that place. You see, focusing on the what ifs and all the questions will not motivate us to avoid hell. The rich man was in such pain, in such torment, that he wanted one drop of water to cool his tongue. One drop of water. Can you imagine how much relief one drop of water could give to someone? Have you ever been thirsty and just had one drop of water? Do you think that that would satisfy you? Do you think that that would cool you, give you comfort, help you? I don't think so. So, can you imagine the torment that someone would be in to ask for just one drop of water. Hell is described as a place where there will be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. I don't believe anyone can imagine such intensity. Think about it. This torment is so intense that a drop of water, a tiny second of relief, would be welcome. Someone says, how could a God of love do that? How could He put someone there? I want you to think about that too. Because I want you to realize that God doesn't put us there. God's given us a way to escape it. He's given us a way to avoid it. He's told us about it. He's warned us about it. And he's even told us how to avoid going there. And so, if we miss the opportunity, if we don't seize the opportunity to be obedient, then it's really our own fault. It's our lack of love for God when you really think about it. But not only will it be eternal, but it will be a place of fear and anxiety. This extreme fear and anxiety is represented by darkness. There are some Scriptures that speak of that mental torment. In 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, "...for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment." In Jude verse 13, it says, "...raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame." Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30, the master's dealing with the unprofitable servant, the one talent servant, when he says, cast him into outer darkness. Do you notice anything about those passages of scripture? It's not just darkness. It's the blackness of darkness. It's not just a blackness of darkness, it's outer darkness. Hell is so far from light that it is described as outer darkness. God is light. We've talked about in our lessons and some of the lessons that I've emailed to people, we've talked about God is light. In Him is no darkness. And so when we think about hell and we realize that it's darkness, God's not going to be there. Hell is completely absent of God and any of His blessings. There is one place that God is not. God is not in hell. So it is absolutely and utterly darkness. Darkness. Most people are afraid of the dark. I think all of us are afraid of the dark to some extent. You go out there, you hear the sounds. You know, Sometimes you go out there and you're in a dark place and you start hearing all kinds of things. But if you hear something out in the darkness, you don't want to go out there. I remember one time we were camping in the wilderness out in the middle of nowhere. It was pretty dark. We were in the tent. My wife and I were in the tent. And something was walking around outside. And she said, why don't you look out there and see what it is? I said, I don't think so. Because it's out there, and I'm in here. And as long as it don't come in here, I'm not going out there. But when things are dark, you don't want to go out and see. Our imaginations cause us to fear. Fear. In hell, our imaginations will have an environment in which to work in perpetual darkness, unbelievable darkness, and outer darkness. You see, in hell, there will be a hopelessness that cannot be calmed or eased in any way. It will only grow worse and worse, more intense as eternity rolls on. But there are some things in hell that, or something about hell, that there are some things that won't be there. And one of those things that will not be in hell is rest. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 11 it says, And they have no rest day or night. That word rest is a comforting, pleasant word when you think about it. You work outside, you work at your job, you work somewhere, and you're exhausted and you just want to rest. You want to go to bed. Maybe you want to sit in the chair. You just want to sit back and relax and rest. And there are times I'm sure that people are exhausted and they go to bed and they can't sleep. Something keeps them awake. Maybe their body's aching so bad. I don't know what it is, but they just can't get, get comfortable and get that amount of rest that they need. In hell, we will be perpetually exhausted with no opportunity to rest because the fire is not quenched, the worm dieth not, and the smoke of torment rises forever and ever. Think about it. Absolute, total, eternal exhaustion. In hell, there will be no hope. Hope is what keeps us going. Look at our world today, and we hope that in the future, things are going to change. Sometimes in our own lives, there's problems that exist, health problems. We have a hope that we're going to get better, and they're going to get better. In hell, there is no light at the end of the tunnel, there is no rainbow after the storm. There is no rest after labor. After 999 years, after 9,999,999 years, there will still be no hope. Abraham told the rich man, Between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from thence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Indeed, hell is a hopeless and helpless place. Most of us that are here this morning are baptized believers in Christ. We are the children of God. We have enjoyed His blessings in His kingdom. The question is, will we turn back into the world? The Bible tells us that indeed it will be worse for some than others. In Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it, to turn from the holy commandments delivered unto them. In other words, it would have been better to never have known what you should have done than to go back into the world and start living like the world and end up lost. I think that it gets back to the memory and the consciousness that we will have. Because think about it, for all eternity, if you were a Christian, for all of eternity, if you're lost, it will be the thought of I had it in my hand and I let it get away. It was in my grasp. And I let go. How could God and made an eternal torment of hell any plainer than what he has in Scripture. We are all interested in how to miss hell. I don't think any of us want to go there. What must we do to make sure that we don't end up in hell? I want you to understand that hell is not a punishment visited upon non-believers and the disobedient by a vindictive God. Hell is simply the natural consequences of sin in our lives. The good news is that the Gospel is available to all of us. We need the blood of Christ, and that is the only thing that can cleanse us from our sin. You can look at Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. He was a good man. Prayed. Gave alms to the poor, helped people, all kinds of good things. It sounds like a good citizen, everything. But he still needed to hear the words that he had to do in order to be saved. We still need that cleansing blood of Jesus today. I can't be good enough. I can't live good enough to say that, God, you've got to give me heaven. I still need the blood of Christ. God provides that. He's given us that life lifesaver, which is His Son. And the Bible teaches us that in judgment and reward or punishment will be based upon what we do with Jesus. And everyone here today can avoid hell and its punishment. Good people are not going to, go to, are not going to heaven and bad people to hell. Saved people are going to heaven and lost people are going to hell realize that you don't have to be an evil, evil person in order to be lost. You simply have to obey not the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the plan. You can see it on the screen. Our faith must be based upon the Word of God. Romans 10, verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I hear people say, why can't I change? Why can't we just change the plan? Why can't we change what sin is? Why can't we make our description of sin? Why can't we decide what it is? Why can't we change what the Bible says? Well, for one, it's not my Bible. It's God's Word. I don't have the authority to change it. And yeah, I see people out there in the denominational world, even some in the church that have changed or try to change, God's plan of salvation. But who am I to change God's plan? My faith must be based upon His Word. Your faith must be based upon His Word. Not my Word, but God's Word. And that's where our faith comes from. In Acts 2 and verse 38, the Bible tells us to repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We can have that forgiveness today. The same thing that worked on the day of Pentecost will work today, and it will work however how long this world lasts. Jesus said in Mark sixteen fifteen and 16 to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. What is the message of the gospel? That Jesus died for our sins. It's that sin that separated us from God. He died for our sins. He was buried, and He arose victorious over the grave, proving that He is and was the Son of God. And so we understand that and we go out and we preach that message and we need to be obedient to that message that it's only Christ that can reconcile us back through His blood that was shed on the cross. And when we believe that message and we're obedient to it, we have the promise of salvation. You see, we 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 can be a child of God by having faith, by repenting of our past sins, confessing the name of Christ, and then being baptized as the way the Bible describes baptism, which is an immersion in water for the forgiveness of sin. And then in Revelation 2 and verse 10, we find the last part of that verse tells us, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Even if it costs us our life, we're to be faithful. And living that Christian life does cost us our life every day. Why? Because we're to deny ourselves and follow Him those who are Christians, those who are children of God, we still need the blood of Christ. I still need Him to cleanse me. He tells me in 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So once I become a Christian, I still may do something that's wrong and I need to repent of that sin and confess it to God and then what cleanses me? The blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 7, He says, And if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanses us from all sin. That's not a license to go out and just live it up and sin all you want. As a Christian, we're to avoid sin. We're dead to sin. We don't want to do those things anymore. But when, As a Christian, when we do sin, we have the forgiveness of sin if we will comply with what God has told us to do. So the question for this time is will we let the fear of punishment motivate us, move us, compel us to become the people and person that God wants us to be? And if it will, Don't forget this lesson. Don't forget what the Bible teaches us about it. Next week, we're going to talk about heaven and the reward that God has promised. We need to be thankful for that. But we need to also be thankful that He's warned us of what's coming if we're unprepared. So I hope that you will put your faith in Him and be obedient to His will. You have that opportunity. You can come and have a seat up here on the front row. We'll take care of your need, whatever it may be, as we stand and we sing. I come into thy freedom gladness and light Jesus I come to thee out of my sickness into thy hand sin and into thyself